Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan, and today we are going to be continuing our series as we go through just topically, point by point, some things discussing Calvinism. And again, if you listened, have not listened to the first part where we talk about um, foreknowledge, we are not spending a huge amount of time getting in the weeds about, you know, quoting from Calvinists all the time getting into the philosophical stuff, we're kind of just focusing on the ideas and the concepts that are brought up, like last time we talked about foreknowledge, and why Calvinist's view of foreknowledge, where God knows all things because he has determined all things, one is not necessary and really limits God. And I know a lot of Calvinists would have some issues with that. But today we're moving forward to the next kind of aspect that is really important, is talking about election. And so... Let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, where we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now the word underlying chosen in that, where it says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, is the same Greek word where we get the word for elect or election. Um, It's eklektos, uh, meaning favorite, chosen, elect. So when we talk about something being elect or something chosen, we're talking about the same idea theologically. It's coming from the same Greek word. And it's easy to remember the kind of basic concept of chosen for the word election because, you know, as in our country here in the United States of America, You have elections for your leaders. You are choosing your leaders. So anytime you think about chosen election, just just remember election means chosen. And so the the elect are the chosen of God. So as last time we talked about foreknowledge, let's uh, just kind of remind ourselves that foreknowledge does carry a basic sense of knowing beforehand. But it actually goes beyond that in some circumstances, and I think sometimes these are there's a lot of overlapping with these ideas. It also has the idea of God having previously loved and affectionately, re- affectionately regarded you as his own, which would make complete sense. If he knows the end from the beginning, he knows those who would be in Christ. He has foreknown you in Christ. He knew before the world began that you, if you are a believer, would believe in his son, and therefore be a believer, one of the elect, right? Now, so just kind of remembering that, as, you know, so we talked about last time, if you want to talk more about that, go back to the last um, lesson that we did in this series, it's just called Foreknowledge. But Calvinism, or Reformed Theology, some people broadly refer to it as Augustinianism, because it's... um, Origin is not in the scriptures. Its origin is in Augustine of Hippo, who was a Manichaean Gnostic and brought over some of those ideas of incipient Gnosticism into Christianity in the third and fourth century. Um, it does not originate with the scriptures, the basic philosophical ideas. But Calvinism, at its very core, some would say it's about the sovereignty of God, and some would say it's about you know predestination. And the answer is yes. Um, A lot of these things are all wrapped up together. But as it regards to soteriology and salvation, Calvinism believes what is called unconditional particular election. So we're going to break that down real quick. Our word election, obviously, choosing, right? And so they hold to, that is Calvinism, Reformed theologians, say that it is unconditional. Um, This is the idea that once you are elected or chosen, you cannot ever lose that state, i.e. there is no condition to meet for salvation on man's part. It's all just done by God unconditionally. And if, you know, and there's a lot of arguments, um, even from people who are not full-blown Calvinists, they were what we call inconsistent Calvinists. Um, anybody who holds to eternal security, I consider an inconsistent Calvinist, because even those who don't agree that, you know, with the other points of Calvinism, but nevertheless hold to eternal security, they will defend it to a certain degree as a Calvinist does. You know, they'll say, well, you know, no, it's unconditional. So it's apparently it's conditional until you meet the condition, and then it's not unconditional, and then it's not conditional anymore, you know. Um, and so, but Calvinism holds to an unconditional view of election. 
They also hold to it being particular, right? That election or being chosen is based solely on individual people. God chooses or elects people individually to salvation or damnation or reprobation, as they would refer to it. And so they hold to an unconditional particular election. God is unconditionally choosing particular people, individuals, before the world began. Now, this logically, when you go through the system, would lead to the idea of a limited atonement. Um, Anybody familiar with TULIP? You know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints— is a summary of some basic concepts of Calvinism. It is much more complex than that, but it is a basic parsing out of the basic core beliefs that everybody argues about. And so if you accept certain arbitrary beliefs um, about God and His nature, as we talked about last time, you would, of course, logically try to fit that all together and superimpose that over the Scriptures. And that's all that it is. I'm not going to hide. And that's what it is. Um, the idea of a limited atonement would naturally proceed from a view of unconditional particular election. And this would be that Jesus didn't die for everyone, or else to the Calvinist, everyone would be saved. And so this has actually led some fringe Calvinists, not the main Calvinists, you know, or anything like that, but fringe elements who actually look in the Scriptures and see that it says that Jesus did die for everybody, and they say, well, God's will is done, right? And you can't do anything to thwart God's will, which is true. Um, and so they say that, uh, well, obviously everybody should be saved, you know, and so they would, they went over to a universalism. This actually was a big issue in the, I think it was a Presbyterian denom- uh, church um, in the 1800s. But these ideas are false. Unconditional election, false. Particular election, in the sense of how Calvinists mean it, false. A limited atonement, false. They're completely false. Um, so just, I wanted to go into, that's the Calvinistic view, and so we're going to kind of go through some scriptures and talk about kind of some reasons why and what the scriptures actually do say. So as we move forward, just remember that salvation or election, and so when we're talking about election or being chosen of God, we are talking about salvation, right? So you'll see a lot of overlap, and it's the same, it's kind of synonymous, right? If you're talking about election, you're talking about salvation, right? Somebody being chose by God to not go to hell for their sins. Whatever, however you want to explain that, or whatever, you were talking about salvation. But understand that even Calvinists will admit, most of them, will say that the election or salvation is potentially for all mankind. And so that's something that everybody who really looks at the Scriptures agrees with. It is at least potentially for all mankind. Now, they would, some people would say, well... Um, it's potential, and then they would go on to, you know, change some things about how they would talk about it, right? And that's what a Calvinist would do. But it, that is true. Salvation or election is potentially for all mankind. Then we'll read some scriptures, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11, New King James Version. says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And in case you want to know, all means all. Um, And I will say this before we get into some of these things. Whenever you have a word, and this is what Calvinists will do, and this is what a lot of um, people who teach false doctrine will do, they will find one context, one verse within the Scriptures that um, will say that all does not obviously mean all, and it will mean not a universal sense, but in a general sense, kind of like a tongue-in-cheek or in an idiomatic way, right? It just means like all present or all of this particular group, right? And so, but then they will find a place that nobody would deny that in the immediate context, this place, all does not mean all universal, everyone in existence ever. And they'll say, yes, see, so all does not mean all. And then they will take that one isolated incident, that one isolated context, and superimpose that over the whole of Scripture, and that's just—that's terrible exegesis. That's not Bible study. That's you trying to force an interpretation. Whenever the Bible says all in a particular verse, all men or whatever, you must look at the immediate context for each and every occurrence. You can't take one passage and where it means this and then superimpose that over the rest of the New Testament every single time that word occurs. That's forcing an interpretation. That's not looking at what the Scripture says. But and so in these contexts, I believe that if you just read them, they mean exactly what they say. It's And regardless of what some people would try to say, all means all in the context of salvation 
almost every single time it appears in the New Testament. And some people who have educated themselves out of common sense just need to get back to reading. And I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but that's all that it is. Just get back to looking at what God says and forget what you were told the Scriptures mean. Okay, so Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, right? And so people say, well, it just it, that could be just general grace that, that's given to all mankind, right? And I was like, well, no, that's not what it says. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So it is talking about saving grace. And then some people will go on to say, well, it just says it appeared to all men. It doesn't say that all men are partakers of it. Well, yeah. Well, let's read some other passages then. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. And it is talking about the crucifixion. Christ died for our sins. He was reconciling the world to himself, not a particular aspect of the world, the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, very, I mean, these are the normal passages that are brought up in these discussions, but just read them. Um, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And now Calvinists will come along and they'll say, well, the whole world's not talking about the whole world. Well, really, who is it talking about then? It says in 1 John chapter 5, it says, we know that the whole world lies in wickedness. So is that not talking about the whole world? Does the whole world not lie in wickedness? And they'll say, no, of course the whole world lies in wickedness. And so what happens is people picking and choosing interpretations for verses, depending on whether or not it supports or contradicts what their doctrine is. And I'm not just talking about Calvinists, that's just a lot of people in general. And anybody who's a Christian for any length of time, you can find yourself doing that if you're not careful. You need to look at what the Scripture says, take it as the authority and not the interpretation of that passage that you have been told or heard. I don't care if you went to seminary or anything. But so it says that he himself is the propitiation, the atonement, the satisfaction for our sins, talking about believers, and not for ours only, John says, but also for those of the whole world. So he sets the whole world in contrast to believers. There's no way to get around this, especially when you do an exegesis of this passage within the whole context of 1 John. There's no way to get around it. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Well, who's the all referring to? All believers? All kings, priests, and this or that, which is in the context of, you know, the couple verses in the beginning of the chapter. Well, let's say right before this thing, it says, and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That would be all men, right? Again, and it says he desires all men to be saved in the first part of the passage, verse 2, verse 3. So it's all men he desires to be saved, and all men were, you know, included in the ransom that Christ did and what he did. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, again, these are all common passages in the Calvinistic or debate, non-Calvinist debate. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I've literally heard people say all doesn't mean all here, it means all believers, you know, or all of us. You know, Dwayne Edward Spencer in his book on Tulip would say, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. It says he's not pa- he is patient towards you, the believers, and then sets it in contrast, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is, all believers, all people who are elect in that sense, as not as Calvinists mean it, but in the sense of all those who God knows will accept you know the gospel. I mean, but it's, you're getting you're getting into the weeds when you start talking about things like that. In this context, anybody who reads it, every single time they read it, those people who do not know Calvinism, who were not indoctrinated, 
And they read it, and they're like, oh, God desires all men to be saved, and he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all men to come to repentance. That's the sense of how they take it. And so sometimes, I mean, I'm not against education. I'm against indoctrination, though, absolutely. And I've been there. I've had to be painfully corrected about doctrine. Um, Not full-blown Calvinist. I was never a full-blown Calvinist, but I was a moderate Calvinist. And it is painful to be corrected doctrinally, but it is also painful when you actually are corrected and you look back on all the evil that you did, because it is evil. You're misrepresenting God if you teach false doctrine. And it's going to be absolutely painful for those who go to the judgment seat of Christ, hopefully the judgment seat of Christ and not the great white throne judgment, and they are judged as false teachers. So I would rather deal with the pain now in this life of correction than whenever nothing can be done about it later. But there's no way to get around it. God desires all men to be saved, and Christ died for all men's sin, right? And so this logically leads to the philosophical question. If God desires all men to be saved, and Christ has made provision for all men to be saved, then why aren't all men saved? For the Calvinist, they say it's because God secretly doesn't want all men to be saved. They say, well, they, they hold to a certain view of monothe- monothetic uh, will of God. He has one will, and that is to save whoever he wants. Yeah, and so they say that you're attacking God's sovereignty. They say you're attacking God's omniscience, omnipotence. They say you're attacking God somewhere. Right, Because if God in any way chooses or has to deal with somebody else having free will, somehow that's terrible. Um, you know, Again, go to our, view, our discussion of foreknowledge beforehand to see this. But much of this is just, uh, as Robert Shank called it, verbal smog. It has nothing to do with the actual issue. God's sovereign no matter what is in the universe. God could have ordained rocks to be preachers if he wanted to. It doesn't matter. God's sovereign no matter what he says, but whatever he does say, whatever he does decree or determine, he's sovereign, and he sovereignly does it. You know, it doesn't matter what happens. God is sovereign. His sovereignty is not under attack by anybody. But for the Calvinists, they say God doesn't actually want men to be saved, and I could go through a host of, you know, as I said, verbal smog, you know, just throwing out ideas and all sorts of stuff that people say, well, it could be this or that, could be this or that, you know, permissive will, proximate, remote cause, things like that. The idea is just, it's garbage, though, because God says he does want all men to be saved. And so that's really where the idea ends. When God says, you know, and the apostles write down and say, you know, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I'm just going to stick with what the Scriptures say, regardless of the philosophical views that get imposed on it by Calvinists. So the Calvinists really go into a point where they say, yea, hath God said, and they change what God's word means in order to uphold their view. So they say that he has a secret or unrevealed will or desire that some should be punished for all eternity. They can't have this thing with the duality of the will of God, where God can actually have multiple things that he desires, one of them being that God desires men to make a choice. Why? Because then the fault of them not accepting salvation is on them, and it's not on him, you know. But we'll get into some of that another time. And so the idea that God, for a Calvinist to say that God doesn't actually want all men to be saved, but he says that he wants all men to be saved, because that's undeniable in the Scriptures. But he, And so they really they make God out to be a liar. He says one thing, but he actually means something else. That's lying, you know, Titus 1, 2, God cannot conceive of a lie. You know, and I believe it's Numbers 23. Um, it says, he's like, I am the Lord. You know, I'm not a man that I should lie. You know, that might not be the right verse for that, but that's, it says it also in the Old Testament in Numbers. And so this idea that God says one thing and means another, that makes God out worse to be, the, to be worse than the devil. Because this is the, supposedly the one who, has, who is saving people or not. But their primary argument, Calvinists, is that if Christ died for all men, then all men would be saved. Or to state it another way, they would say, if Christ died for all men and some are not saved, then the death of Christ was ineffective. They say, well, he didn't accomplish what was intended. That is according to them. But that's not the issue. And again, it's like, stop philosophically arguing. If the Bible says Jesus died for all men then he died for all men. You don't have to sit there and argue philosophically about it. Just base it on what the scriptures say. So, and also, but this ignores the obvious. They're they're a line of reasoning. The death of Christ was not intended to save all men. 
and nowhere says that in Scripture. It was only intended to make it possible for all men to be saved. And that's important to remember. God did not intend with the death of Christ to save all men. He only intended to make it possible. And people who just read their Bibles, that's what they come to the conclusion of. But it takes somebody with a couple degrees or indoctrination to come along and twist these things. You know, being the veritable snake on a, on a tree limb, saying, Yea, hath God said, in order to teach you something else. And it's a slight, such a huge insult to the character of God. But there's also an obvious scriptural point that is ignored and fought against by Calvinists. I have literally, you know, you read people like Burkauer and Hoeksema, Hodge, and these guys, and you read their writings, and they assume their view and interpret the scriptures in light of their beliefs. And they will almost intentionally say, I know Burkauer almost intentionally says it, that you cannot allow any degree of unconditionality, of, of conditional salvation in. You can't. They assume their point of unconditional election, unconditional particular election, and then they just assume that anything that seems to contradict that, therefore, is just being interpreted wrong, find whatever rescuing device or loophole that you can come up with, and that must be what it is. I mean, this is just how false teaching happens in all points. It's not just Calvinism. But scripturally, all men are not saved because God has unconditionally decreed that there is a condition to salvation or election. This puts the conditionality of it, and it's on man's part. It's not that God is not willing to save all men. The scriptures flatly declare that's not true. It's not that there has not been provision made. That The scriptures plainly contradict that. It's that man is not willing to be saved. And the Calvinists would agree with that point. They would say, of course, man's not willing to be saved. He's in bondage to Satan. And again, that's true. Man is in bondage to Satan. But the difference is, God draws all men. Christ said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto, unto myself. Right? And uh, John chapter 12. So he says, if I be lifted up, talking about his crucifixion, I will draw all men unto myself. Right? There's the prevenient grace of God drawing men to salvation, right? It says the Holy Spirit was given to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And so according to, to the Gospel of John, Christ was lifted up, he was crucified, so he's drawing all men unto himself, and the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, right? And so God is drawing all men to, unto himself, which creates a problem for Calvinists whenever they say that the drawing of God... The, uh, the, his grace is irresistible, right? But God has unconditionally chosen that salvation is conditional. And so people will get confused by it. You're saying unconditionally chosen a condition. Absolutely. God has absolutely decreed that there is a condition to, to salvation. He can damn who he wants to. He can elect who he wants to. The question is, who has he done that for? What is what he has like what is it that he says? This is the way it will be. And it's really, really clear scripturally. It doesn't, you don't need to get degrees to understand this. Just read the Bible and just ignore people trying to say that the Bible doesn't mean exactly what it says. God has unconditionally decreed that there is a condition to salvation that man must meet, right? But let's go and let's kind of zoom in on one particular aspect of this real quick before we kind of answer that. Jesus Christ is the elect one of God. He is the chosen one. And so election or salvation is Christocentric. It, is, it has Jesus Christ at the center of it all. And this is where some people don't understand that for a consistent Calvinist, Jesus is not the really what saves them. They are not saved by grace through faith. If you want to really parse it all out according to consistent five-point Calvinism, you are saved by arbitrary decree. If you're a Calvinist, you're not actually saved by grace through faith, right? You are saved just because God decided you would be saved. And then the fact of, if you're a Calvinist, it's if Jesus, Jesus is just a thing that that's the, the way that he chose to do it out of any number of ways that he could have done it. And some, and again, Calvinists will take issue with that. It doesn't mean that I'm wrong. 
right? Uh, one of the main arguments Calvinists will actually say against it is, well, you just don't understand Calvinism. Well, no, this is actually what some Calvinists and the main ones actually say in their systematic theologies. And so they even argue about whether or not Jesus was necessarily the payment for sin. But the scriptures laid out as Jesus is the center of it all. He's not, it's not, his death wasn't symbolic. It wasn't just, you know, pageantry, as some say. It was the whole point. And any other view perverts, twists, or ignores the scriptures. I mean, consider what is prophesied regarding Christ in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, that is my elect one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you by the hand and watch over you. And talking about the Messiah, he says, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So in this passage, whenever the Lord is prophesying and he's you know telling about the Messiah that would come, he's called the chosen one, the elect one. He's said that he will be a covenant to the people. Jesus is the chosen or the elect one of God. He is the covenant to the people. In Luke 9, verse 34 and 35, we read, While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He's called the chosen one, right? First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. I'm going to read the New King James Version. I think it's more explicit. Coming to him as a... As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So who's the chosen one of God? Who, If you want to really parse it out, who is the elect of God? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the elect or chosen one of God. And now, let's see if you detect a pattern when we read through Ephesians 1, right? And Calvinists, they think that they have some kind of monopoly on the Romans or Ephesians 1. They think that they, you know, dominate it. No, they are just the most loud voices about it. They're not correct on most of it. And you can search church history before John Calvin, and you'll see that. Um, so let's just read through Ephesians chapter 1, down to verse, uh, starting verse 3, down to verse 13, and let's just see if you detect a pattern in what is said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you detect something, every single blessing that we have 
is only in Christ. It says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When it says every, it means every. That means there is no spiritual blessing towards you that does not come through Jesus Christ. It says we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. It says that we are predestined to adoption through Jesus Christ to Himself. It says that the praise of the glory of the riches of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. It says in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And also it says, and this is one thing that Calvinists will try to say all the time, was like, well, there's secret things. The secret things belong unto the Lord, you know, Deuteronomy 32, 29 or something. Right? Well, well, yeah, there are secret things that belong to God. The difference is he says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Yeah, there's other things that God has kept secret that are just for him. But the will of, his, of salvation has been made clear. And he says that he has made known unto us the mystery of his will. He will say, well, this, you know, it's only the Spirit is the only one who searches the mind of the Lord. And, you know, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who was, and it's like, well, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2. Well, guess what? It goes on to say, but we know because we have that Spirit. So don't just allow people to be like, well, it's a mystery, you know, God's, you know, God's secret will. Well, no, no, no. It says he's made known to us the mystery of his will. But every single blessing is in Christ. People say, well, why would God give you an inheritance? You know, it's kept up and kept in store for you and incorruptible and then fadeth not away and everything like that. And it's like, well, no, it says that, yeah, it's like, yeah, he has done that. But it also says in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's a condition, in him. And people will say, well, you know, it's like we're sealed with the Spirit. Well, actually, it says we're sealed in him. And a seal is not a lock. If you study that word, that's not how the ancient world considered seals. A seal is like a symbol. It's a symbol that you belong to someone. It's not a lock. Every single one of these arguments that people use to defend perseverance of the saints of Calvinism or eternal security fade away when you actually just look at the fact that it's in him. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Right? People say, well, eternal life, God's given it to me, eternal life. He's not an Indian giver. He's not going to take it back, is he? Well, it's no. This life is in him. It's in Jesus. He didn't just give you a box and walk away and say, oh, good job. You got eternal life now, and you can just walk all over creation away from God. No, in him was life. Jesus is our life, it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. And also think about this one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Yeah, God has given believers eternal life. It goes on to say, and this life is in His Son. It's not yours, it's His. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it goes on to say, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Notice it's not past tense, it's present tense. If you presently have the Son, you have the life. If you presently do not have the Son of God, you do not have the life. It never, it doesn't appeal to some decision you made sometime in the past, or some arbitrary time where you were elected in whatever past or whatever. No, presently, if you have Him, you have life. So every spiritual blessing, eternal life, is in Jesus Christ. He is the elect one, and you are elect or chosen in Him. It is only as you have that relationship to Him that you are a partaker of any grace of God. Now, I think it's, uh, the verses that we looked at are just a few minutes ago. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Yeah, you are chosen, elect before the foundation of the world, but only according to God's foreknowledge, in Him. It says, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He knows beforehand 
your relationship with Jesus Christ, whether or not you will this or that, right? Whether or not you will be found in him, right? And then it says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God knows who will accept that, who will meet the condition. Those are the ones, those ones who he knows will be found in his son whenever they, you know, whether the Lord returns or whether or not you die. He knows whether or not you are in Christ when that is the case. And so he's just lovingly acknowledging you as him, as belonging to him in eternity past, right? So God sovereignly and unconditionally decreed that the condition of salvation or election was faith in his elect one. This is literally the gospel. God has decreed, and it is unconditional, there's only one way to salvation, there's only one way of election, and that is, you must be in his Son. So through his foreknowledge, right, he knew before the foundation of the world who would meet this condition that he decreed. He decreed that this would be the condition. And he lovingly acknowledged them, those who met the condition, as his own. Now, believers are chosen or elect according to God's foreknowledge. That's just what the scriptures say. Now, here, another point. Though Christ died for all men, and all men are potentially saved, it is only efficient for those who meet God's condition of faith, right? You know, or it's... God has made provision for all men to be saved, but it is only going to be applied to those who meet the condition. An illustration I'll use for people is there's a rich man who, you know, just out of the kindness of his heart, has sold all of his possessions, right? He gives all of himself, right? And he just puts all this money in the bank. It's a bottomless bank account, and he just starts publishing it everywhere, saying, whosoever will, if you have debt, come and draw on my, my bank account to pay it. And so there's provision for all men in this bank account, right? Anybody in the world, all of them could come and draw on it, and there's enough there for all debt to be paid from this man's bank account. That's how rich he is. And anybody who does come has, they didn't earn anything, they just accepted it. An empty hand being brought to God does not mean that you earned anything by acknowledging your need. As the Calvinists try to say that if you believe, then it's a work. I'm sorry, that's just blatant false teaching. That is not the Scriptures. Christ and the Apostles very clearly said, especially like Paul in Romans chapter 4, says, if it's of faith, then it's not of works. Faith is not a work. Faith is acknowledging you can't work. Just consider a couple passages, and you'll see this. this both the, some of these passages are very, very clear in stating God's provided for all men, but yet all men still have an action that they have to do, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not just a portion of it, not just the elect, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, yeah, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, right? And it's like, okay, so the world's reconciled. No, 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 no. Because it goes on to say, and he's committed to us, but as believers, those who are already reconciled to him, the word of reconciliation, the gospel. And he makes us ambassadors for Christ to go out into the world that God through us would appeal to men, begging them to go be reconciled to God. Provision has been made for the reconciling of the world to himself, but he sends out messengers commanding other, all people, saying, come and be reconciled. Come partake of the reconciliation that has been made. It's like it's here if only you would accept it. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So it says, so God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the context in John 3, you know, before and after this verse, makes very clear that he's meaning the Son was given for the world, right? That all the world through him might have life, is what it says. 
So he gave his son for the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's man's part, to believe. There's provision for the world. Christ was given for the world. But only those who believe will partake of that eternal life. And so the condition of our salvation, it's on our part to meet it. Now, again, and I'm probably going to have to do a whole episode talking about depravity of man, man's fallen nature. I've talked about it in the past, a long time ago, a couple years ago now. But, and so people say, well, you're saying man comes to God of his own thing. No, I'm not. That is not historically what people who aren't Calvinist say. Some people, yeah, but not all, and certainly not, you know, not most. The scriptures make very clear, God draws men to himself. Difference is, he, uh, different than Calvinists would like to say, is I actually believe the Bible when it says, Christ says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, and that the Holy Spirit is given to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And people say, well, the Spirit, this or that, the Spirit won't this or that. Well, what do you call the gospel? The gospel is spiritual, and it is the message, the word of reconciliation that does go out to stir people up by the Spirit of God, who is the author of the words of God, Right? And Christ said, John chapter 6, yes, John chapter 6, Calvinists, that the words that he speaks are spirit and life. And so when believers go out and they bring forth the words of God, the spirit of God is in them to draw people. The word of God is spiritual. And so when people are being confronted with the message, the word of reconciliation, the gospel, it is a spiritual thing and it is drawing men. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, you see the condition stated. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. See, Calvinists will say that the grace of God is extended to you, and then you have you are saved and you are converted, and then you believe. And yes, there is a grace of God that is extended to all mankind. It's called prevenient grace. But it says we have access into saving grace, the saving grace of God by faith. We have introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and exult in hope of the glory of God. Or in Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. The Bible is very clear. I don't need to belabor the point. Faith is the condition of salvation. It's the way in which you appropriate that which Christ has done. And even some Calvinist scholars like Hoexima and them will admit it in their writings. They'll say, yes, the, the death of Christ does not save mankind by itself. It must be appropriated. It must be applied. A payment means nothing if it is not applied. The difference is Calvinists reinterpret the application part. And so our election as believers is conditional. So let's quickly show how these how some passages that are used to argue for an unconditional election or an unconditional salvation actually say the opposite in their context. One really big one we uh, went over, we kind of using this as a baseline for kind of stuff we're going through is Romans chapter eight verse twenty nine through thirty. Everybody quotes it. You say so, you know, you believe we can't you lose your salvation. It's like, oh yeah, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? And so Calvinists and once saved, always saved, or eternal security teachers will say, see, look at this unbreakable chain of salvation. There's no wiggle room in it. So let, well, let's look at some other things that are said in that very chapter. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if... Notice the conditional word, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if you by the Spirit... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's two if statements. If you live after the flesh, you must die. If you, by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? That's a conditional statement. Two of them, actually. People say, well, it's just meaning that, you know, if, if somebody's truly saved and they live in sin, then they're going to die early. You know, God will just, you know, punish them by taking their physical life. And, I mean, I sat down with a, uh, a pastor um, couple, uh, two or three months ago now, I think, and he, you know, tried to say, well, it's just saying that, you know, God will, you know, punish you by taking your physical life. And I was like, oh, so God's going to reward your disobedience by living in sin, by taking you to heaven early. 
And that's exactly what they're saying. God's not actually punishing you. He's going to reward you for living in sin, if you're a believer, by taking you to heaven early. And I'm sorry, that's horribly unbiblical. I know that's not what they mean, but in essence, that's what they're saying. Right? But here's the thing. What's Paul meaning then? If he's saying that, oh, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. Well, if he's meaning physical death, he's not really stating anything new. Everybody who lives according to the flesh dies, whether you're saved or lost. It, the, the lost die physically, and saved people die physically. That's not stating anything. It's actually saying you will die in the sense of spiritually, you will be cut off from the life of God. And it, that's why it sets it in contrast to, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? Is that saying that if you by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live physically? No, if you're going to be consistent, that's what you're going to have to do. Or is it saying that if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live spiritually? Right? And it's not even saying you'll start to live spiritually. It's you will continue to live spiritually, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't already have the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. So there's very clear conditions stated here. Romans 8, 14, the next verse. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That means if you're not being led by the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. What if you stop being led by the Spirit of God? What if you were being led by the Spirit of God, and then you turn to sin and do not repent? That means you are stopped being led by the Spirit of God. And regardless of what somebody's theology says, I know people, and everybody knows somebody that's done that, if you've been a Christian long enough. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So according to this, just these passages, in the same chapter, you must be led by the Spirit, not live after the flesh, and you must suffer with Christ, or you'll perish. And since the spiritually, I want you to think about it. And so why would we then take Romans 8, 29, and 30 to attach no conditions whenever we're just in the same chapter, we've already found three or four? That's because that's not what that passage means. Now, it is a promise, and it is a blessing, as, you know, in the next couple of weeks, whenever we talk about it, you'll see. It is a promise, and it's stating something that's true. But don't use that to say, well, you never fall away if you ever become a Christian. That's not even, what's, it's not even what it says. But also notice that the end of the chapter, when everybody quotes the last two, verse, two verses of this chapter, Romans chapter 8, they'll say, well, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, most of the time when people quote that, they'll say nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, and you should always retort, finish the passage, finish the verse, finish the sentence, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, the love of God is in Christ Jesus. You don't have access to it unless you're in Christ Jesus, in the sense of saving, that saving love of God, that saving relationship with God. And people say, well, God loves all people. No, not in that way. There are different types of love of God. Of course, he loves all mankind, but just because God loves all mankind doesn't mean all mankind is saved. That's very clear. You know, for God so loved His Son that He gave, he, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that is, for the world, right? And nevertheless, it's only whosoever believeth in Him that should, should not perish. But it says there is a saving type of love. You read John chapter 14, verse 21 and 23, and tell me that God doesn't have a particular kind of love just for those who actually follow Him. Because that's exactly what He says. He says, you know, He that loveth me, he it is that keepeth my commandments, and my Father will love him. That's conditional. There's a different kind of love. It's a relationship. So, here's just, I mean, it's so funny. People will quote Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, and they'll say, see, unconditional election, whenever the rest of the chapter says the exact opposite. And another passage uh, that I, you know, I believe I've heard some people try to do the same thing with and take it out of context is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And I've got a, again, I've got a whole bunch, I've did two hours of answering arguments for just normal once saved, always saved. We're talking, kind of keep in particular talking about um, Calvinism in this series. I'm just using these as bare, basic examples. 
Um, but Second Peter chapter one verse four, uh, they say, "Well, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." And it's like, oh, see, you're you know you're going to be you're making partakers of the divine nature. You've already escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You know, it's like, oh, so if you're already escaped, you know, you can't go back. You know, begging the question, but. But I want you to think of two other passages in Second Peter, where it says it very clearly, Second Peter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, right, election, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, in the sense of fall. So what does it mean? If you don't practice these things or continue these things, then you will stumble. You will fall, Right? And when think about that, if why if you can be so certain about your election and it's unconditional, why does Peter encourage you to be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you? Now people will say, well, he's meaning make sure that you are truly converted. And it's like, well, yes, absolutely. Yes. But is that just one and done and then you never have to do it again? You never ever have to examine yourself ever again. Not contrary that's contrary to what the Bible says, but you know, whatever makes you feel better. Uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 20 and 22, consider this passage. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow after washing returns to the wallowing in the mire. Now, I could spend an hour just talking about this verse and all the things wrong and what people try to say to escape this. And I think I did in Bible study the other night, spend a good amount of time just going through this. But just consider what it says. Is it talking about people who were never saved? No, that's very clearly not what it's talking about. It says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... And so if you're going to say this person was somebody who was never saved, then you're saying that this person escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but was never actually converted. So how can a lost person escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not be converted? That's, it's completely false. So it's talking about somebody who has actually been a Christian. They were truly born again. Why? Because they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it says, if they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Well, in what way can somebody who can never fall away and can always go to heaven no matter what happens, some people say God will reward your disobedience by taking you to heaven early, right? In what way could this ever lead to them having a state worse than before they came to Christ? There is no such existence. There is no such existence or result that could ever make a Christian, at least, you know, who can never fall away. If Calvinism was right, if, if eternal security was a true teaching and Calvinism was right, there, this is nonsense. It only makes sense if you could go back to the state you were before you were saved and then also be worse than that which is exactly what the Scriptures lay out as, as happens to some people, you know? But it also goes on to say, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the Holy Commandment handed on to them. That means they knew it. It says they escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge. They, they did escape them, but they returned to them. And now this state of apostasy, this state of, you know, falling away to everlasting destruction. When you knew the truth, you had become a partaker, and you fell away, it's worse, because you knew the way of truth, and you turned from it. And then it says, it happens to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, right? A sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. And the idea of those is that, you know, a dog will eat something, it'll go it'll grow around for a little while, that thing will turn its stomach and will make it sick, it vomits it up, right? It gets rid of the thing and expels it from itself, that was what made it sick in the first place. But then, the dog would go back to what made it sick and eat it, right? 
And so that's the idea. If you are a person who does escape the corruption that is in the world, right, the defilements of the world, and then you go back to them, that's exactly what you're doing. There was this thing that was making you spiritually sick, and you're returning to it. Now, people will say, well, you know, God never calls his own children, you know, a sow. He never calls his own children dogs. Well, one, that's not true. Because there's two separate words in the Greek for dog. There's actually one for wild dogs, and there's one for tame domesticated dogs that are like pets. So, no, you're wrong about that because you don't study very well. But two, you never argue from analogy back to doctrine. Ever. Because you're just going to interpret the analogy by your doctrine and go back and change what the passage actually says, which is exactly what they do. And also, here's the thing. In a certain sense, no, God never calls his children dogs. Here's the thing, though. If you fall away, you're no longer his child. So yeah, in that sense, yeah, God doesn't call his own children. He doesn't call the elect dogs. Why? Because they're continuing with him. If you fall away from that state, guess what? You're no longer one of the elect. You are no longer in union with the elect one of God, who is Christ. You're no longer a partation of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. Right? But whenever you just look around at everything and you assume your doctrine and interpret the scriptures to meet it, of course you're just going to find it, you know, exactly what you want to believe. When you keep your head in an echo chamber, all you hear is your own voice. So here's the obvious question. Why do people deny the obvious? Why are people so antagonistic to the idea that election or salvation is conditional? And I've been there. I've held to it. For a lot of books from people, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and there's only one reason. And you can actually find this in theological writings, them pretty much admitting it, albeit they're trying to defend the idea. If there is a condition that man must meet, then there is human responsibility, and we are responsible to God for meeting it. And that's what people are fighting against. They are fighting against the idea that they are actually responsible to God for something, that they are fighting against this idea that there actually is something expected of them. If there's one thing I can tell you from experience, talking to Calvinists, talking to people who hold to eternal security, as opposed to those who do not, and I'm talking about sound people, not like fringe people, okay? The one thing that I know that is a big difference is those who are Calvinistic, those who hold to eternal security, they get afraid whenever you rattle them about whether or not what they believe is biblical. And I don't mean in the sense of them being like, oh no, I might be wrong with this. I mean in the sense of they actually get scared because it shows that their life has not been up to snuff. It's not been actually being lived the way that they know it should be lived. And I've told this to uh, to people before in messages and exchanging stuff with people and stuff like that. If I'm wrong about salvation being conditional, my life really isn't going to change for the, for the better, in a sense. I don't have to amend anything in my life in that sense. There's no skeletons in my closet right? Somebody, if I die, somebody searches through my phone, they're not finding anything. If I die and people search through the drawers of my house and every corner and closet, they're not finding anything. I'm not hiding anything in that sense. But there's so many people that if the idea that God actually has given them commandments and that they are expected to actually walk in them, that terrifies them. It really does. And so one thing that is the difference is the fear of God. And I'm not talking about walking on eggshells, terrified of God. I'm talking about you have that reverence for God. And I'm not saying every Calvinist doesn't have a fear of God. They have a fear of God, which is usually not the right way. God is the Savior. And God and salvation is a gift. But God has willed or decreed, however much you want to say it, to give it to those who believe on his Son. That is man's condition, faith and walking by that faith, which is obedience. God can unconditionally set whatever condition he wants, and when that condition is met or not, it's still still being unconditionally handled by God. 
God's sovereignty is not in danger of being overturned by men yielding or not to his will, because God's still sovereignly handling all things. So next week, I don't know what we're going to be talking about. I've been, I was discussing with some of the guys here and people for Bible study. I might actually start going through the entire book of Romans. Not necessarily verse by verse until you get down to ver- uh, chapter 9, but just to give context. And then I do want to go verse by verse through Romans 9 through 11. Um, it's easy to understand. It's not Calvinistic at all. So until next time. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.